HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Summer is now in full swing, and that means so is Heritage Radio Network's Summer Membership Drive. Please consider joining the Heritage Radio Network community by becoming a member. If you're a regular Inside Julia's Kitchen listener, think about setting up a monthly recurring donation. It's just $5 a month for an individual membership or $10 a month for one for your whole household. Your ongoing support helps ensure the future of Heritage Radio Network and its unique programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to join and check out the membership benefits now. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Andrew Knowlton, Bon Appetit Magazine's editor-at-large, co-founder of Talk Y'all, and soon-to-be host of a top-secret new food show. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Andrew about Anthony Bourdain's legacy, chefs and mental health, and we'll hear Andrew's Julia moment. We'll be right back. As our listeners know, In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we usually launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. This week, it's hard to pinpoint the relevant inspiration for today's topic. Other than Julia strongly believed, chefs mattered. She saw them as both artistic geniuses and skilled technicians. To Julia, their role was to delight you in the restaurant dining room and then inspire you to see what you could do at home in the kitchen. On June 8th, celebrated food writer, chef, and television personality, Anthony Bourdain, took his own life while filming his Parts Unknown television series in a village in the Alsace region of France. This sent a shockwave around the world. Why would he do this? Why now? The answer is really one only Bourdain knows. 
In 2012, during the celebration surrounding what would have been Julia's 100th birthday, Bourdain said, Julia Child was the single most important, influential, and game-changing figure in the history of American gastronomy. She will be remembered for what she did on this earth, which was to inspire millions to cook and eat better. Today, we'd like to repay this kind perspective and talk about what Bourdain will be most remembered for. To do that, we've invited prominent food writer Andrew Knowlton to join us, an industry veteran he both knew and worked with Bourdain. Our goal today isn't to focus on why, but as it would have mattered greatly to Julia to begin to see what we can learn from such a tragedy. On that somber note, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Uh, Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's still quite hard to believe that Anthony Bourdain is no longer with us. But as we come to grips with the loss, we wanted to, of course, acknowledge it and then focus on his legacy. So how did Bourdain, as you wrote, Andrew, change the world through food? Well, it, it's it's fascinating just listening to you talk and talk about Julia Child. I, I would say that in my career, since I got into food, which is uh, 1999, I guess, is, is when I started uh, at Bon Appetit magazine, um, it was about Julia Child. It was she was the person who inspired me uh, in many ways to get into food, uh, whether it was through the cookbooks or through the TV shows, um, who really opened my eyes to a whole new world. In this case, mostly France, but also, you know, with her other shows when she would invite guest chefs on to cook with her. And, you know, I was introduced to all different worlds of cuisine and and. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that Julia Child, Julia Child caused me to get a passport, but she was one of the reasons that I seeked out, um, different foods. And, and the thing about, uh, Anthony or, or Tony, as a lot of people call them, call him, um, even if you didn't know him that well, um, you know, I, I, that morning that my wife was taking my kids to school and, and I, and I was walking back into our apartment building. She says, check your email. And all these thoughts ran through my head. And, and the last one would have been that, that news. Um, and you know, it's, it's always shocking when you obviously know somebody, um, who takes their life. It's shocking when you don't know somebody, but especially when it's a public figure that you've had interactions with. And, I kind of sat down on my couch for a minute and I just uh, kind of, I don't know, I I went through my Instagram and it was obviously I follow a lot of food people, but it was just picture after picture and kind of long, long note and and these stories about how Tony Bourdain had affected all of these people. And it just hit me that besides Julia Child, there, there had been nobody in the food world who had galvanized such a huge breadth of people from, you know, from nerds and, and foodies, you know, elitist foodies to (laughs) just everyday folks who had seen him on TV. And it, and, and I, and I was struck just by, I didn't realize how powerful and, and meaningful that he, he had become to food. And I don't, I don't think there's anybody 
if we had lost somebody else in the food world now, there's nobody that would have compared to him. And that's a testament to what he's done. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm rambling right now, but no, no, I think, I think what you said is very profound and, and really resonates with me because I struck by, I, I never had the fortune of meeting him. So that's why I haven't called him Tony. Um, but maybe (laughs) with your, your permission, I'll switch to that. But, I think that what I was struck by is how hard it hit me not having met or worked with him before and how many people who aren't in the food world who had read Kitchen Confidential and been influenced by it by a piece of memoir writing. And I so I think that comparison to who got as far along in terms of influencing a huge number of people in such a big way as Julia, I, I agree with you. What do you what yeah. do you think it is about Tony um, that made him like Julia? Kind of because he was so singular in in what kind of person he was, but he kind of connected and resonated with everybody from all walks of life. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think he kind of peeled back the the layer on on food and was so brutally honest about it in a way that few before him had ever been i mean obviously i mean i re- i still remember the day that in the new yorker where he wrote the story that would later kind of become kitchen confidential and and i had worked in kitchens but nobody had really talked about it and then in this way that was kind of like wow this is this is no bullshit like this guy's not trying to get a tv show or he's not trying to make anybody <laughs> he's happy. not trying to win anyone over <laughs> he's not no he's not and i think that is what ultimately through you know through his different tv shows like he you know a cook's tour on food network and and you know the the, the travel channel shows with no reservations and the layover and then finally with parts unknown i think you know he was always he was never fake you know and he came across that way he was always honest he truly cared about the people. I think it was people first and food second. And he knew that to get to know people, to get to know a culture, that you had to go through the people. And you couldn't be a jackass American or you couldn't, you know, you had to put yourself in situations that you you just had to let your, you know, as I said in a piece I wrote on Bon Appetit, you, you kind of had to eat first and then ask the questions later. Just give yourself over to whosoever table that you were sitting on. And I think that, that kind of honesty um, really appealed to people. And, and that's why I think when he, when he did pass that everybody who saw him or read him or heard him speak, felt like they knew him because he was a real dude. He was that, you know, I know it gets thrown around all the time, but he had that punk rock mentality that he was just a dude off the street who made it big by being a fantastic writer, A, but also just a real guy. And I think, you know, so much of the food world now is guided by things that, you know, there's there's a lot of great people in the food world, but there's also, you know, too many people taking photos of their food and then actually not even eating their food or, or not being honest, I think. And I think that's why he appealed to so many people. That's why he appealed to me. Yeah, no, there wasn't any artifice. And then it helped that he just had this, this, this confidence of cool that, and he much more so than Julia was had this kind of punk rock vibe going on, which I think, do you think it was also bravery that in many ways, he seemed braver to people than maybe they um, considered themselves? 
Yeah. I, I think one of the things interesting, you know, looking at Julie Child and her life, and, you know, I've read a lot of the books that have been written and, and then about Anthony Bourdain is I think the one thing that both of them have in common that made both of them so appealing is they were they were human beings that they made mistakes and they were fallible. And like, mm. even if it was, you know, Julia dropping a chicken on the floor or accidentally cutting herself or those jokes that get, get parodied all the time, she you felt like she was in your kitchen. She wasn't perfect. She was just like you. And I think mm. the same thing with Tony was he wasn't perfect. He admitted that. And he but he he also took the powers that he had like Julia and opened people's eyes to a whole new culture. I mean, I always think, you know, there's a crazy statistic that only like 34% of Americans have valid passports or have passports at all. So that means like whatever, 66% don't. Um, And I, I I think it was probably worse before Julia Child and Tony Bourdain, because there's, you know, there's been, no two people who who have who have gotten people to get on a plane and travel to uh, you know a culinary destination and discover a culture through food yeah or for those who di- didn't or couldn't or wouldn't they brought it back to them through television which which is equally powerful so Absolutely. you mentioned i mean it, it's you know you think of some of the great writers how how that created that armchair travel whether it was graham green or um, some of my favorite writers um and that and that's what you know anthony bourdain was able to do was to take you to vietnam to take you to burma to take you to all these places that you know some of us couldn't go um and showed us a world through our tv and and I think, you know, opened our eyes to different cuisines that, like you said, even if you couldn't go or didn't want to go or, you know, that you would seek those out in whatever town you live in. Maybe that maybe, you know, you'd go try a on me at the very beginning or, or you'd get even braver and go try, you know, all kinds of different cuisines. So I think that that, that ultimately for me is that he changed so many people's perspectives. Yes, on food, but on culture and the acceptance of how important understanding other people's culinary and cultural achievements are. So would you say, do you think that's one of the profound elements of his legacy is that changing of, of, of an opening of attitudes? Do you, do you see, I mean, do you think you, it's too soon to pinpoint one thing or do you think it's several things like kind of how, I mean, it's, how, yeah, it's so complex. I think when you're, when you're dealing with somebody's influence and time will tell, I think for me, and I can only speak for me, I think, I think that is, I think, you know, I, I, I've always been told that I have a pretty good job. You know, I get to travel around the country and I get to eat and, you know, I get to go abroad once in a while and do stuff and I can't complain about my job to anybody. And and you even get paid for doing that, right? It's a job. Yeah. And, but you know, I, I always wanted Tony Bourdain's job. That's the job that I always wanted. It was like, it was, it was being a rock star and traveling the world, but you got to eat along the way, you know, every, every moment. And I think that is ultimately for me, his, his legacy is opening my eyes to different foods and different cultures and, and helping me realize that as messed up as the world has become in a lot of ways that the table is still for many of us, the best way to access 
understanding and culture and love and and that when you do have a home cooked meal from somebody even if you don't speak their language or even if you don't know how they got to that seat at the table you share something and i don't think there's for me there's no more powerful tool um to, to that understanding and i think you know with tony's work and 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 you know watching him on tv that that was that was the true message i think that that i'll take away you know you know, until I die. Yeah, no, it's it's hard hard to feel like you can maintain a really strong political difference if you're getting joy from the pleasure of something that's fed to you by someone else who you might not not even uh, agree with. Absolutely. So, I think that that's really helpful because I think right now I felt really strongly that this is such a sad and monumental loss, but such an important moment. I I, I thought it. it it rose to the level of needing to be discussed, and I think a lot of people have have talked about the need to be open and honest about what happened, and I actually appreciated the way the media reported it. I think, unfortunately, re- reporting people's suicides does seem to have some kind of suggestive tendency, but I also think, unlike 50 years ago, when people pretended like people didn't commit suicide, that that's right. not helpful. So maybe less somberly... I hope that's a word. Um, I'm, As many of our listeners know, in every show, we ask people for their Julia moment, which I'm certainly going to ask you for at the end. But I also wanted to ask you for your favorite Tony memory moment or how he inspired in your career. You already talked about Julia. Can you give us uh, one of your Tony moments? Well, I, I mean, I mentioned it in the piece that I wrote uh, for Bonaparte. Um I was uh, doing a video series for Bonaparte, uh called uh, "A Shot in a Beer," uh, which is basically we we would go to a bar and we would uh, chit chat about stuff, uh, you know, and ask questions, and we you know we drink a beer and then we do a shot. And um, so we did it one time with uh, Tony Bourdain and his his pal eric repair and uh of all places where we were doing a shot in a beer we did it at laverna Dand in new york which is this kind of for those people who have heard of it or haven't heard of it it's a you know it's a basically a three-star restaurant a michelin restaurant (laughs) um maybe not the first place you'd think of doing a shot in a beer and um so we did it with eric and 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 you know you know who people don't know, Eric was with Tony, you know, in Alsace when I think he was the one who actually, you know, walked into the room and discovered what had happened. Um, so that, that, that was probably five or six years ago. And I just remember after we were done filming, um, Tony and I walked outside on just outside, you know, this bustling midtown street and we'd been drinking Mezcal. Um, and we actually took our kind of cups outside uh, he seemed to not have a problem with that. And so I just followed his, his lead. And, you know, he just, um, he talked to me about, you know, what, what I wanted to do and what kind of inspired me. And, um, it wasn't a long conversation. It was probably a, you know, a 20 minute conversation, but I think it was two things I took for that is a, you know, who am I that, you know, he is sitting here talking to and, and, you know, he wasn't looking over my shoulder. The, so, so, the way so many, you know, celebrities would. And he was asking me questions. And and I think that was the moment that I realized as a journalist or as a father or as a wife or what, uh, excuse me, as a, as a husband, was that 
he wasn't talking. He was listening to me talk. And I think that was another thing that I took from him is just shut up and, and listen to other people, let them tell their stories. Um, and then, you know, learn from them. And I think, you know, when we left that day, he said something is like, well, just whatever you do, uh, find something you love and do that. And, and he said, that's, that's what he had found. You know, he loved cooking or he thought he loved cooking, but then he found writing and, and transforming people's ideas of, of, of what it meant to engage in the world. And, and I think, so th those were the two biggest things, you know, I, I had had meals with Tony. I was not, I wasn't his buddy, buddy. And I don't want to give that impression to anybody listening. There's people who know, who knew him way better than I did. And I was flattered enough that he made fun of me once in a while when I was on TV, <laughs> you know, when, when blogs were going on and all that. Um, but I had shared meals and I felt a connection to him just being in the food world. And, um, th those are the moments that I think I'll, I'll take away, but I, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about um, that. And so, I, you know, thinking about just shutting up and listening to other people, I think we could, that, that's a, a big thing that Tony did. And I think we could all use that right now too. Yes. No, it really is a time where um, more listening would be better than more talking. Yeah. And I'm struck by how many parallels there are to kind of how Julia was too, that she genuinely was interested in other people and wanted to hear your story and what you said and that the two of them shared that or maybe i mean tony's always given her a lot of credit maybe he even you know took that as a, it must have been inherent but as a lesson from julia as well yep all right we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to get andrew's more general perspective on chefs and mental health stay with us we'll be right back I was so impressed with the quality of Bob's Red Mill, unbleached white, all-purpose flour, and inspired me to do more baking. The one thing I was short on was time. But I was flipping through the Fannie Farmer cookbook and stumbled on a whole set of easy quick bread recipes. If you don't know quick breads, they are small loaves made without yeast, less sweet versions of what's often called a tea or pound cake. You basically pour a bunch of ingredients together, ones you most likely have in your pantry already, stir, and bake. No proofing, no waiting for dough to rise. They make for a fast homemade breakfast, as it can easily be baked in advance. If you don't own a Fannie Farmer cookbook, you should. It's a comprehensive guide for classic American favorites. Even Julia relied on it. I was using the 1979 edition modernized by Marion Cunningham, which includes a lovely foreword by James Beard. Stay tuned for the quick bread results from the Foundation's Test Kitchen. In the meantime, visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JULIA25, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products like white all-purpose flour. Anthony Bourdain wrote in a piece for Bon Appetit magazine several years ago, he said this, to experience joy, my father taught me, one has to leave oneself open to it. Ironically, it seems like this openness somehow got switched off. So, Andrew, do you see Bourdain's death as a wake-up call for us to do more about mental health, and particularly mental health among chefs? 
I mean, it's a, it's it's the the timing of of uh, his death is just is insane to me. It's, you know, there's so much going on in in society right now. Um, you know, there's been a lot of chefs who've been uh, rightfully you know brought brought forward about the things they did, um, the Me Too movement. Um, and I've, you know, over the, this, this, this is such a somber <laughs> uh, discussion we're having, but it's one that's necessary and people need to talk about it. You know, I, I, there's a lot of bartenders and chefs out there who have always struggled with depression and anxiety. I don't know what it is about cooking. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not only the professional cooking world that happens in every industry. This is the only, but this is the one that I know. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, you know, alcoholism. I've had a lot of good friends recently uh, pass away, uh, bartenders, uh, you know, because they dealt with issues uh, through alcohol and perhaps they didn't um, speak up or people who knew them didn't know how to reach out or didn't reach out. And, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, Kat Kinsman um, has uh, written a lot about depression and anxiety in the kitchen, um, has a website, Chefs with Issues, and, and she's a great person to talk to about this. And it's, it's something that is, needs to be discussed. It's, um, you know, it's, it's one of these art forms that you're putting yourself out there. There's a lot of pressure. You're constantly surrounded by what other people think of you, um, the reviews and, and you're surrounded by alcohol. A lot of times there was drugs and it's just, you know, it's a late night thing and it just, it breathes, um, some of that. And I think, I think the one, I, I hope that the one thing that comes out of whether it's Kate Spade or whether it's Tony Bourdain or anybody that this happens to, um, is a frank discussion about the restaurant industry, um, needs to help each other out. Um, these people who cook for us are constantly taking care of us and, you know, making these beautiful cocktails and making these meals. And we spend our lives with them celebrating anniversaries and birthdays and all these momentous occasions. Um, but I don't know if anyone's taking care of them. And I just think it's something that hopefully this will open people's eyes and people will seek, you know, help, you know, the, the restaurant, um, industry has for, for too long been this kind of macho, arena where um you know people talk a lot of crap about things but they don't talk about their problems and um you know that needs to change um because it's going to be detrimental to the industry if it doesn't and and hopefully um with this there will be that activism but you know there are sources out there again kat kinsman does an amazing job reporting this and and you know she's written books on it um yeah, so, no, yeah, I like I mean, what I, she I, said that, you know, we need to talk about this and it needs to be talked about because I and I think for me what she was saying and and sadly personally I have a lot of firsthand experience with these issues is that the more people feel like they can talk about whatever is bothering them or or what they're suffering from and the more that it's recognized as legitimate, the more that it can actually be dealt with and people don't have to 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 feel and you know, I think some of what you wrote about, though, is also true that if you don't suffer from it, you can't really understand what it feels like. Um, right. And all of those things are are still it's kind of new in society that these are even identified as a health issue, if you will. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think to recognize that, you know, as humans, we are uh, fascinating creatures and, but we're also, you know, vulnerable. And, you know, I talked to so many chefs as I travel around the country and I would say in the past couple of years, there's been more of them who've kind of talked to me about anxiety or depression or, um, you know, feelings of, you know, feeling inadequate in their job and all that. And, you know, that, that, it's refreshing to hear that people go through things, you know, not everything is perfect. And to think that is to be naive to the world. And I think in any situation that we can kind of talk, talk about it, that's, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but that's the first, that's the first step. And, um, you know, I've, I've since, since a lot of this has happened with Tony, I've kind of, and some of the alcohol uh, concerns with the food world, I've I've reached out to people who, you know, um, that I feel like might need for me to just ask, hey, is everything okay? Like, do you need anything? Uh, the way in the past, maybe that I personally would have just brushed it off as chefs being chefs or just that's the that's the lifestyle, um, you know. And I think Tony Tony built that up a lot in his books that kind of rock and roll like take no prisoners if you complain or you whine or whatever that you're somehow weak and i think towards the end well what was the end of his life he kind of came around and and kind of uh, called called his peers out on that a lot of times too um yeah, um, no, well, I like I like what you said. I'm starting to think this sounds equally cheesy, but having a chef's appreciation month, because I think you're right that a lot of chef culture is taking care of other people, whether it's in a motherly Leah Chase kind of way or in a more rock star kind of way, like Bourdain did. It's still giving a lot of yourself to others in a business that's inherently emotionally demanding. Whenever you work a job where you're up really late that's really brutally physical and then i mean i'm not sure if there's a chef around who hasn't been through career transformations where you build up a whole business you throw your heart and soul into it and it may not succeed in the end or it may last 10 years and then you have to start over and you know they're not they're not many careers like that and that that is tremendously emotionally demanding and draining and maybe really underappreciated yeah i mean and, and I, I think you know both of us are, you know, being a, owning a restaurant or cooking or, you know, being a server or whatever it is in the hospitality industry, there's certainly jobs that are a hundred times more difficult than that. But until you fully work in a restaurant and understand just how physically and mentally demanding a job like that is, like it takes understand. I think I've always told people that one of the prerequisites to like being a human being on this planet is to be in the hospitality industry for at least a little <laughs> while, just to see how amazing people can be, how terrible some people can be. Um, and just, you know, that physical mental toll that it takes. But I think you, you come out of it as a better person. I've always thought that we, we should all have to work in, in some way that way. Just to, I think it makes you a better human being. Well, I, I can cer- I'm having flashbacks to I my first job as a server was at the oldest tennis club west of the Mississippi and that I did it two different summers in university and it looms large all the lessons in life and human behavior um, yeah. that I learned and, and I would say I also saw some mental health issues in the kitchen fortunately nothing nothing that yeah, severe. Yeah, there's there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my time working in the working at a place called the grocery uh 
in Brooklyn, New York on Smith street, um, that something doesn't pop into my head. Some, some, some lesson that I learned there, some, something that always helps me deal with something. It's, it's fascinating the way that comes back. I don't think there's any other job I've had that really had, that made such an impression on me. So on that note, maybe I'll start to shift our mood toward the future and what good can come <laughs> out of tragedy. Do you think already this sort of introspection and feeling of the need to be more caring to chefs in particular and people who work in hospitality, do you think that one of the the first good thing that's coming out of something so awful and shocking? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, you know, you talk about the Me Too movement and then you have, you know, the, the, this depression. And I think there's some similarities in them, this kind of macho, you know, kitchens that have been the, the standard for way too long. And and that's I think that's going to change. You know, a lot of people, like I said, have to shut up and listen to other people. And they need that torch needs to be passed to uh, voices that have been underrepresented in kitchens. And, and people like me need to you know, like I said, uh, listen to those people and, and, and have a role in celebrating everybody. So I've, I've already seen it in a lot of ways. And, and I think, you know, anyone who's running a kitchen, who's, who's not taking care of their employees in a way, not just monetary or health insurance, but, but mentally and watching out, they're not, they're not doing their jobs. Um, you know, I think that goes, that's the, that's the new way. And if you're not doing that, why would anyone want to work for somebody like that? So I think that's the one positive, I think from all this is like, it's changing, things are going to change, and it's going to take uh, some time. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's, it's well overdue. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, I think it, it creates better work environments. I think it creates better food and, and just a, a better lifestyle. So I think if there is any silver lining in this, which I think you have to find that um, no matter what the circumstances are, uh, that's going to be it. It's going to change things if we've known them and it's going to be a lot better. Well, I like that. I, I think a lot of people are agonizing over these, you know, oh, well, they're just setting up new rules with Me Too and everyone's being mollycoddled. And it's not that there's no truth to that, but I think, like you said, the end result is much likely a better environment for everybody. And yes, people may have to get used to doing some things differently. And many people who would have liked things to be different may come out of their shells. So I think there's a lot to be gained by trying. Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to hear some. I think you're you're seem to be a kind of an interesting place of transition. So tell uh, what you you pick what you want to talk about. I'm curious what talk y'all means. I think I know both those words from different. I think you're mixing something Scandinavian with something Southern. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I, I I've been in Bon Appetit for I think I say forever. Um, you know, I've been with Bon Appetit for 18 years, and I a couple of months ago I um, decided that it was probably time to leave New York City after after a long time here. I have two two daughters, nine and six, and um, you know anyone who's lived in a big city and has children knows it can be uh, hard. And you throw in trying to buy a million dollar you know house that doesn't have a backyard that doesn't seem very appealing. So. 
Yeah, my family and I are moving to Austin, Texas, where it's nice and cool there, you know. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, you know, my wife has uh, worked in, in the industry, the food industry for a long time. She was um, Tom Clickio's uh, assistant and, and Marcus Samuelson's assistant. And then she did a lot to help uh uh, restaurants in Brooklyn, the Franks and the Prime Meats restaurants get off the ground. And then she also just recently opened Asuka, which just got two Michelin stars, which is in Williamsburg. And so mm. we wanted to, you know, I've, there's always been stuff I've wanted to do outside of the magazine. And one of those is kind of, I certainly don't want to ru- own a restaurant. I'm not, I'm not that crazy, but I do, <laughs> um, I do feel like I have something to offer in terms of the way restaurants are run and, and how they do things. And so Christina and I kind of set up this talk y'all, which you're correct. Talk means, uh, thank you. Thanks in, um, uh, Norwegian where she's from. And then y'all, uh, obviously y'all thanks y'all, uh, where I'm from in Georgia. So we, we're, we kind of like a consulting company, uh, if that's a dirty word, but that's the only one I can think of. Um, so, you know, we're working with a few hospitality groups, um, one called the Mighty Union, which is opening uh, some hotels uh, down in Texas to start off with. Um, so we're getting into that. And, you know, I think there's a I'm working on a book right now, um, uh, a book about the kind of life lessons that you can learn, uh, in food. Um, kind of not calling it a self-help book, but it's not a cookbook. (laughs) Um, and then I was lucky enough to do a TV show, which you kind of hinted at. I can't really talk about it, which seems silly, but it's something I'm proud of. And I've done some TV before. Um, it's, it's, it's no Anthony Bourdain show, but, um, there's some really great people involved and it's with a really great, um, company that's putting it out, which everyone has heard of. Um, so it's just, yes, you know, I, I, I like... certainly have more and more guests with secret shows with the secret, um, network that everybody <laughs> yeah, seems to be subscribing Everyone's to. I, I'll have to ask them about days. their secrecy policies. So um, is there anything you, know, you can tell us about it in terms of when it comes out or what the general topic is? Yeah, or that's so it's, all... a, it's a show, um, that will be coming out, uh, I believe, uh, in November. Um, there's a lot of great talented chefs involved that are our names big names that you've heard of uh i'm the host of the show um but that's about all i can say um, are you st- you're you know, not sitting on a stool in your home kitchen are you with maybe a, a no, no, cabinetry no. behind you <laughs> i uh you know i no matter what i do next and i'd still be an editor at large for bon appetit i mean that's my family i grew up there um it's it's i've you know, that's that, that magazine represents who I am. I've put everything that I am into it. No matter what I do, food is always the focus of what I do. It's, it's all I know. It's my relationships with people. It's how I met my wife. It's how I, you know, raise my kids in restaurants. And so I think whatever I do, um, food will always be the, the center point of it. Well, we're excited. I think we'll have to have you back on when either the the show launches and becomes a sensation, or when "talk y'all" is something that everybody can pronounce. <laughs> and, um, and, and I would that's love to come back on sounds... so that I can talk talk all day about it. Yes, exactly. Well, well, we always we always have time. Um, but our time is getting short. So on that note, I think we we concluded that maybe one of the. Uh, good things coming out of the sad loss of Anthony Bourdain is that the realization that Macho is on its way out and listening is 
on its way in. So after the break, Andrew's going to reveal his own Julia moment. We'll be right back. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat in 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Andrew, what's your Julia moment? Well, am I allowed to have two? Yes, every. I don't think there's a single person who hasn't cheated. So go right ahead. All right, I'm going to cheat then. Um, my my first Julia moment was in 2002. I hope I have my my years and my math correct. But it was it was Julia's 90th birthday. Did she turn 90 in 2002? That, that indeed is correct. Yes. Okay, so I was a pretty young pup at Bon Appetit then, and my then boss, Barbara Fairchild, said, I need you to do an interview with this person. We're going to do a multiple page kind of timeline of her life. And I was like, okay, must be a pretty big person. Who is that? (laughs) And she said, oh, it's Julia Child. And I just like, I just just froze up. I was like, me? You know, I was an editor. I think I was an assistant editor at the time. So the day came and uh, Julia's assistant called me, longtime assistant, and, and patched me in. And I had a probably a 45-minute conversation with Julia Child about her life. It was her life in 45 minutes and kind of this timeline. And I still, my, my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, got that piece framed and it's still hangs on my wall. That was the only time I ever spoke with uh, Julie Child, and it's a time that I'll never forget. I think something that we had in common with, with Tony is, who was I that, you know, she didn't care who I was. She was, but she couldn't have been more friendly and forthcoming and respectful of, of you know, a 20, 26-year-old kid who was probably asking some pretty stupid questions. <laughs> um but well, I, wait, I most, haven't seen that interview. Will you send it to us? I'd lo- we'd love to see it. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's a big, it's a four-page kind of timeline about, you know, when she used to work for the old CIA and a lot of the things that we just, you know, turning 90 that 
you know, she, she had led this life way before food that had always fascinated me and came to food so late, um, which always offers encouragement to, to us older folk. Um, but I think the, the, the time that I realized what Julia Child meant to me was I was touring the country, eating out at restaurants, um, trying to come up with the hot 10 restaurants, which is our annual best new restaurants. And I took my then six-year-old daughter, Julep, um, to Washington, D.C. And so we ate around. But in between all that eating, I had to like entertain her because she couldn't eat it four meals a day. <laughs> so I took her to the to the Smithsonian, to the uh, American History Museum, where Julia's kitchen had been set up. Um, and you is. could see the way it looked in Cambridge. And Julep didn't know who Julia was, but she, through me, I think she saw how important this woman was to me and my upbringing in terms of who I became and, and how I was raising my kids to be open to new flavors and new cultures. And walking around and, you know, Julep would ask questions about, you know, they had the TV on, they were showing old clips of her and she got more interested in Julia. So it's kind of, I think that Julia moment of me introducing somebody like my daughter to who Julia Child was and what she represented. I think that would be my Julia Child moment. Well, that's lovely. Well, we of course love that because certainly Julia's kitchen is still installed at the National Museum of American History and is that yep. in its new iteration, you know, the entrance to the food um, transforming the American table exhibit. And and I notice every time, and of course I'm biased, but it is kind of a spiritual place that people, particularly people who did ex- know Julia or know Julia in the context of having experienced her work when she was alive, it's a very spiritual connection to how she meant that. And to be able to share that with the next generation is exactly one of the purposes of the exhibit. So that's terrific to hear. Yeah, I'm not I'm not religious, uh, but that that is that's like going to church to me in a lot of ways, taking my taking my daughter to church to going to see Julia Child's kitchen. Well, sacred ground that's open to the public <laughs> for everybody to visit. So we hope people will take Andrew's recommendation to heart. And on that note, we thank you for joining us on what it what is definitely a challenging but important topic. It's much appreciated. Thanks so much for doing this and and for having me. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show, and please do uh, write to us or share with us if you have an Anthony Bourdain moment or how he impacted or influenced you. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation, as always, on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, and we're at Julia Child JCF on Twitter, and Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram. My Twitter handle's at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you'd like to follow Andrew Knowlton on social media, his handle is at Andrew O. Knowlton, and Knowlton is K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N. If you want to check out Andrew's work, go to bonappetit.com and search his name. You can even find that video from a shot and a beer series of him drinking with Anthony Bourdain and Eric Repair. It will lift your spirits, might make you thirsty. And thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. And thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer, 
Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Networks on Thursdays, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads are available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.